Today is Lee Kunla. Hiya. And more importantly, yes, much more importantly, let him have Yanis. Back. Yay! Feels good. Feels great. It's been two podcasts that we haven't had you with us. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. How's the shed? shed Because listeners want to know. Yeah. The shed. I have a shed. It looks like the old one. It's great. I have a brand new fence, which looks impeccable. Put up some nice twinkle lights. Loving it. It's great. Awesome. Yeah. I need to have a party. Backyard party. Okay, well, I mean, we're there. I just I mean, gotta get so like a fire or something, and we can just go. Doesn't matter how cold it is. Yeah, no, I've heard rumors of maybe getting some kind of pizza oven back there. I mean, that's like that's, that's a dream. dream. That's my dream. Right. Yeah, I mean, but someday. I'll I'll get some sort of covered fire pit maybe yeah. sooner than that, and make a little cozy twinkle light area in the back. I'm pretty excited. And now, amazingly, while building a fence and a shed mm-hmm. and just generally working. Yeah. You've also done some deep dive research into some super crazy stuff. Which super crazy stuff? Are, isn't that what we're here to talk <laughs> was about? Was that some, you trying to pivot? That was me doing... I, I thought this was a really like successful pivot. That was an unsuccessful fact, pivot. An unsuccessful I feel like your pivot. stuff is more crazy than No, no, mine. no, no, no. You, you came to us with some really amazing stories about modern art in the CIA. Well, we'll see. All right, I'm going to try and recover from Lee's Lee's fail pivot. <laughs> All right. Oh, okay. Lee. Guys. And we're going to yeah. keep that in, aren't we? We're yeah, just going to yeah, keep yeah, that yeah, in yeah, to yeah, humiliate yeah. me. Lee's so very you always come right back now. to that yeah. terrible pivot. All right. It was amazing. All right, Nathan, what are we doing? Guys, you know what they say about the 1960s? What? If you... Wait. What don't you were, they say about the 1960s? If you remember it, you weren't there. Right, and I don't remember it, uh, but I wasn't there. Yeah, so that doesn't count. So, oh. My pivot was bad too. <laughs> Elena, can you could you try to pivot? Could you rescue this podcast, well, what are, Elena? What are some things that come to mind when you hear the '60s? It's like oh, there we go. What are Thank some you. words, some images? Like I'm seeing, you know, psychedelic swirly things, colors, swirly colors, long hair. Yeah, Vietnam like War. Vietnam War. Sorry, sorry for protests, that one. Protests. Protests. Uh, music. Woodstock. Like, trancy dancing. Okay. Nudity. Pot. Yeah. Lots of cannabis. Head, headbands. Headbands. Headbands, yeah. Right? Yeah, I guess so. Music music festivals. That's what we're talking about today. What we're going to talk about today is we're going to look at this very strange decade. And actually, you know, it's funny because we spent a lot of time in the 50s on this podcast, a lot of time in the 70s. Uh, We've spent some time in in the 90s, but we haven't really done that much on the 60s, which is weird because the 60s is a really interesting decade. Yeah. But what is it that we are talking about specically in the 60s because it's not going to be tie-dye uh, t-shirts and headbands Aww. and music is it some of it will will it what we're going to be looking at is maybe something about the law of unintended consequences mm-hmm. because the 60s were such a, a strange pivotal time but as it turns out that there might have been some unexpected contributors to what made that sort of counterculture of the 60s so prominent and that's what we're going to be talking about today we each have a story that we're going to tell which sort of talks about how the American law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies tried to manipulate or tried to interfere or accidentally interfered, mm-hmm. which caused this sort of weird counterculture movement or helped to cause this weird counterculture movement of the 1960s. 
Another thing I should say is, if you are listening to this right now, this is an episode that we're going to do live in front of an audience, our first live ever. Or we've done it already. And, and, it, and we screwed it up. Exactly. Yeah, it didn't yeah. work out. Yeah. So if you are listening to this, it means we screwed that up. This is our plan B. This is plan B. So welcome to plan B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because sometimes things don't work out the way you expect them to. There's Just like... Oh! oh, nice. Found it. That was a pivot. So let's have an example of that. It's the Cold War. Mm-hmm. It's the Cold War and the CIA and the FBI are fighting against an enemy that they consider to be a threat from without and also a threat from within. The danger of Soviet communism and the danger of communism within America's own shores. Invasion of the body snatcher style. Right. So why don't we start there? So okay. what are some... Now, of course, as I've said, I think this is the millionth time I've said it. The Americans and the Soviets could not fight each other directly mm-hmm. because of mutually assured destruction. Because they each had nukes, if they had actually gone to war, the entire world basically would have been destroyed. They had to find some of the strangest ways to fight each other imaginable. And this first story that Elena's is going to tell is the story of one of those weird ways that the CIA tried to fight the Soviet Union. Right. So this is part of this the cultural element in terms of the Cold War, right? So there was essentially... Okay, so do you all know who Jackson Pollock is? Do you have an image in your head of a painting? I think he's come up in this podcast before, and we refer to him as Splatter Guy. Splatter Guy. Splatter totally, Guy. We know exactly. Splatter Guy. So if yep. anyone out there doesn't know, just imagine Splatter Guy. So it's it's a big, huge canvases with paint of all sorts of different colors, like literally splattered around. Domestically, there was not a lot of support for this kind of art. Like it was not seen avant-garde and that kind of abstract expressionism, which emerged in the 1940s. In New York, it was very obscure initially, but it became a really prominent movement uh, shortly after that. So just for me and the non-art critics out there, art mm-hmm. historians, so Splatter Guy sort of, I mean, there there aren't things in his paintings that you can point at and say, oh, look, there's a house and a cow. Absolutely and a car not. It's totally, like ab- it's abstract expressionism. So this is the stuff that... It's the stuff that when people see it, they say my six-year-old could do that. Yes. Right. And another example is Mark Rothko. Okay. You'll remember him for like literally just bands of color. It'll be like bands maybe three bands right. of a okay. different color, just kind of faded, watercolory, but it's it's nothing more than that. Like no, okay. you can't identify any this, objects. The, the, this there. is not the Mona Lisa. This is sort no. of like the Mona Lisa smeared all. This is the kind of art that gets people really mad when they yes. find out how much it costs. Exactly. Right. Okay. This okay. Is, so this is, this is, is and they this go is, into the art gallery and they're like three boxes. This is coming out of the United States in the 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And representatives are Rothko and Pollock. And, and William and, de Kooning. Right. And, okay. Yeah. People like that. Yeah. Okay. So this is the, the kind of artwork we're talking about. And so over about a 20-year period, uh, the CIA was essentially attempting to use modern art as like a weapon in the Cold War. That's, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> This strikes me as plausible because I have to admit, and I I hate if we lose any audience members as a result of this, but I am not a fan of abstract expressionism. Is that how... The gasps, I know. Um, Elena just stormed out. (laughs) We have lost her for real this time. Is that how this was being used as... Was it as a form of like torture? (laughs) Wow, you really don't have to was it like we were going to send this? I know this. what I'm getting you for your birthday. <laughs> yeah, Rothko print. Yeah. So there was this same hostility amongst okay. just, you know, average Americans. And so that's part of the reason the CIA had to be covert about it. 
I see. Because it would have just enraged people because it was so distasteful for, okay. for the vast majority of people. They did not see the value in this very subjective, very abstract. Okay. Yeah. But, but it was not... It was, there was no like this. I'm Subliminal sorry. messages. Only, or yeah, like because that. I, we've done so many of these podcasts in the past. I could imagine that they're like, huh, I wonder if we can't brainwash people with terrible art or. Oh, no, there was no, 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 no. It was okay. more to just bring <laughs> this form of artwork to prominence and to show the difference between American art, which was oh. like about creativity and intellectual freedom um, versus uh, the Soviet art, which was more rigid and more realist. And, and the Soviets were claiming that the U.S. was like a cultural wasteland and, I see. Uh, or a cultural black hole. And so in response, CIA was trying to really sell that kind of artwork to, to Europe. Essentially. Huh. So kind of in the same way that the Olympics were kind of a, a way for the Americans and the Soviets to fight by saying, hey, our guy runs faster totally. than your guy. Yeah. The art world was, the CIA was trying to push American art as representing like these American values of individualism mm-hmm. and exactly. creativity. Oh, I see. Yeah. There's a quote here. Um, the goal is to make Soviet art look quote, even more stylized and more rigid and confined than it was. Um, so it was really trying to make a, a vast contrast between the two and, and show the U S as being like the next wave or like the center of culture in okay. the world versus somewhere in Europe. And so, but I mean, oddly enough, the artists that made these artworks were themselves radicals and outsiders like Pollock said, uh, there's a quote from him where he said, everyone at his high school in L.A. thought he was a, quote, rotten rebel from Russia. Uh, and Rothko himself was considered himself an anarchist. So these were very much outsiders that were being sort of used. And many of them or most of them did not even know that some of the funding they would have been getting would have come from the CIA because there were uh, foundations set up through like uh, Rockefeller. So they would set up foundations uh, so they, what they call like, it was almost like a long leash from the CIA. So they'd set up, a, they'd approach a millionaire or someone who owns a museum, say, we need you to set up a foundation, we will fund it, and we need you to organize and curate these exhibits or send them abroad to all these places, centers in, in Europe to uh, exhibit them there. So that way they can get these artists funding without getting sort of the stink of the CIA on exactly. these artists. Because if these artists are trying to portray themselves as rebels, as anarchists, if you find out that the CIA is behind finding them, I mean, even these artists would probably be horrified by that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that is to say that the CIA wasn't saying or didn't generate the uh, genre of abstract expressionism. No. Right? They, it, they, they it, weren't saying to Pollock, you got to paint this. No. Because this is what the CIA figures is, yeah. You know, no, there was none of that modern, calculation. I see. And I mean that that movement probably would have gained prominence anyways. Uh, this was just kind of trying to make it representative of. So there war. was money going from the yeah. CIA to these artists or institutions that supported them mm-hmm. to basically help them create the art that they would have created anyway. But now with funding and maybe more exposure. Yeah, and trying to make it almost like a brand or a logo of the U.S. to be representative of these values of individualism and look at how free we are freedom. over here. Exactly. You know, I'm about to illustrate the fact that I know almost nothing about art of any kind, really. <laughs> but it seems to me that there could be an interesting parallel here. Before World War II, Europe is sort of the the center of industry and political power, and then after World War II, you see this sort of mm-hmm. collapse of of continental Europe and England. And instead that power goes to the Soviet Union and the United States. 
And we would also think of Europe as the place where all the fine art comes from. Mm-hmm. And so then as Europe starts to fade in importance, and the Americans and the Soviets are both trying to raise themselves in importance, is this is that part of the reason why this happened? Yeah, and so the U.S. was trying to build a stronger alliance with Europe. What term did they use? Uh, I have it somewhere here. It was like, yeah, so the CIA believed that Atlanticism or like building these connections between the U.S. and Europe should not only be like economic, political, military, but also... Uh, cultural. So there should be this cultural element, this intellectual element. And so arguably intellectuals that they would have reached out to in Europe or to try and influence, they already probably had to share those goals. Like they weren't reaching out to convert any anyone. It was really trying to build bridges that were already somewhat there to just strengthen them. To your point, Nathan, I think it's interesting to note sort of that high art, what we consider to be high art, because there was, you know, that that is to some extent culturally specific, right, to say it comes from Europe. Mm -hmm. But there is this relationship between art and power that I think you point to when you note the diminishing power of Europe after the Second World War and the emergence of the Soviet Union, the United States as these new superpowers. They're then also the places where a lot of cultures generated from. It's It it was remarkable to me. I, I lived in Taipei for a while and they were wearing different outfits back then when I was there from what we were wearing back home. And I was curious, like, where is this fashion coming from that people in Taipei were, you know, the youth culture was adopting? And it was mostly from Japan. And it really was, they were the powerhouse when I was in uh, East Asia. They were the economic, political powerhouse. And that came with a lot of other stuff, like what music do they listen to? Mm-hmm. What clothes do they wear? If we think about like our fashion it's so dominated by what's happening in the United States. They are really the trendsetters in the sense of what it is that, you know, maybe not high fashion, but the kind of stuff that people wear on the street mm-hmm. is really dictated by what people in American movies and music videos and whatever wear. And so I think that's it's just abstractly worthwhile noting that there is this relationship between culture and power, and especially culture and art, where the art really tends to function in a way to... Uh, support and validate that culture. Well, it's interesting. I think what what both of you are referring to is this sort of idea that you have the hard power of missiles and tanks and planes, but then Mm -hmm. you have the soft power of style and culture. This idea that maybe we should be dropping crates full of Friends DVDs into North Korea. (laughs) This idea that like the the Soviet Union was genuinely terrified that American style was going to leak into their communist nation to the point that I was talking to a woman who grew up in the Soviet Union and she said that there was an urban legend that spread that if you bought American jeans sewed into the lining of the jeans would be little capsules and then when you put on the jeans they would break and you'd get wow. typhoid Wow. Which, of course, wasn't true. Yeah. Right. But, but, it, but so that urban incredible. legend shows you how they were like, oh, no, the genes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The genes The genes are us. poison. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the efforts here being made by the CAA were were sort of to marry these two. Like, I have a, another, uh, there was this great description of their efforts. It's as seeing culture as a Trojan horse, mm-hmm. which secretly would have also carried, like, a political agenda. So, yes, trying to, like, have this deep influence and to change to change these not necessarily values, but I mean, to influence culture in this direct way. So CIA was founded in 1947. And part of this mandate is, is this cultural element uh, in terms of the Cold War. 
They set up a division called the Propaganda Assets Inventory to help counter the appeal that communism still had for many intellectuals and artists in the West. So again, they're also very fearful of that cross-influence. It's not only the Soviets worried, right? At its height, it had influence uh, on over more than 800 newspapers, magazines, public information organizations. Shortly after, in 1950, they set up something called the International Organizations Division, the IOD. And really, the but the most prominent one that uh, I want to talk about, or that was the most prominent, I should say, was the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And it was established in 1950 until 1967, which, when essentially it was kind of found out, this influence that the CIA was having on it. Is it a division within the CIA, or is it an organization funded by the CIA at arm's length? It was, yeah, it was a co- part of the covert operations. It was run by the CIA covertly at what, what I called before, like this long leash. So they would you know, fund things, fund organizations, fund even journals, like academic journals and things like that. So it had actually a far reach in terms of its attempts to have influence. Where we get into the, I guess, the murky area is in, is determining how much influence they actually ended up having beyond funding. Right, because we've already speculated that this this might have happened even without the CIA sort of giving it a nudge. Mm -hmm. And then how influential that was as far as sort of in this war of hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really hard to measure something like that. And there's also a lot of documents uh, that aren't available on the uh, CCF uh, still to this day. Could we measure it in terms of sales? Oh, you You actually put a dollar value. Yeah, because isn't that the way... I, here again, I'm being very crude uh, in terms of my art analysis, but isn't that the way the CIA would measure the effectiveness of this? If you go to auction... Well, especially because they were, they were trying to promote the American capitalist way. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a more appropriate way to measure that than by saying, financially, how has this art done? I mean, the only number I have is uh, about Jackson Pollock's, one of his paintings called Autumn Rhythm. Mm-hmm. And so he died in a car crash in 1957, And after that time, the Metropolitan Museum paid $30,000 for it, which at the time was an unprecedented amount for a contemporary artist. So if that's any indication for you, then... Well, I I certainly know Pollock's stuff. I've seen it all over the world. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And now it is a staple, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in a way, it was effective because even though the movement might have been prominent, the fact that we, we see it all over, it has made its mark. But again would that have happened regardless? It's interesting, too, to think about how there is basically a war being fought over, like, us. There are different people who are using... Like, every time Mm -hmm. we encounter pop culture, there is ideology in all pop culture. Right. There's ideology in style. Mm -hmm. Like, none of these things are are clear of this. And and in a time like the Cold War, which was so ideologically driven between two really clear opposites, it's kind of fascinating to see how that fight worked itself out in the art world. Right. And it's hard to, another description I've heard being used for the attempts here was like, it was like trying to herd cats. Oh, because they're artists. Yeah, they're artists. Like they, they also tried to influence musicians. For example, uh, was it Louis Armstrong that they tried to promote and send him around on tours and and things like that in order to try and show, for example, um, Louis Armstrong, he was promoted around the world as like a symbol of U.S. culture and, and racial progress in the States. 
but he periodically left this position like as being ambassador in opposition to U.S. actions. So, for example, he was on tour in 1960-61 in Africa, and he openly criticized the government for its lack of progress on, on civil rights issues. It's not to say that all of their efforts were, went the way that they hoped, mm. um, but they there were other styles of music like classic symphonies, Broadway musicals, jazz performances, like apparently Dizzy Gillespie was another artist that was sent around and, and funded. As a way for the uh, American government to say, look, we're not a racist country. Totally. And they were also trying to show more opposition to the Soviet attitude. So uh, there was a, some festival of masterpieces uh, that, they, that, was, that they sent a tour in Paris to play. All these orchestras, like nine orchestras were performing artists by um, 70 composers. And most of these composers had been at some point dismissed by communist critics as like quote unquote degenerate or right. sterile. Bourgeois. So they were exactly. So they were very much trying to set themselves up in opposition to, to Soviet attitudes. Huh. Yeah. One other example to counter European criticism of, of like us race relations and treatment of African Americans. They set up, uh, there was an opera that had an all black cast that they were trying to promote, promote again as being like a sign of racial progress in the U S and, mm. and richness of culture and whatnot. It's. It seems so bizarre that the CIA would have funded an all-black cast mm-hmm. opera. Like mm-hmm. that is not the kind of weapon that you think that you think of when you think of the CIA. You think of like nerve gas. You think of yeah. secret cameras. You think of spy planes. You don't think opera, mm-hmm. and yet there they are. There they are. I don't know. Do you I kind of. I kind of like the look of the CIA more when it's funding an opera. So before we move on to the less uh, pleasant aspects of the CIA's involvement in the 60s, I mean, the, we started with what's the CIA and later the FBI's involvement in the counterculture of the 1960s. There's an obvious way, right? I mean, you can see, I know these artists and maybe I know them because the CIA funded them. Is there any evidence one way or the other or any reflections from CIA officials about this program's effectiveness in i don't know humiliating or whatever they wanted out of did it have its intended effect with respect to the soviet union is i guess what i i mean there's there's differing views on it so on the one hand there's the idea or or the belief that it was effective in in demonstrating these differences you know america being the land of the free russia being locked up culturally comparatively yet there's other people who just argue that it was just the artists and intellectuals were just kind of too slippery. There were this these cats that kind of did what they wanted regardless, and, and you couldn't really necessarily... Nice 60s jingoism. There. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, those are weird bedfellows. Yeah. yeah. Like the CIA agents and the anarchist artists are a strange couple. <laughs> Tom Braden, who was uh, the head of the CCF for a while, he said this... We wanted to unite all the people who were writers, who were musicians, who were artists to demonstrate that the West and the United States was devoted to freedom of expression and to intellectual achievement without any rigid barriers as to what you must write and what you must say and what you must do and what you must paint, which was what was going on in the Soviet Union. I think it was the most important division that the agency had, and I think it played an enormous role in the Cold War. Huh. I mean, obviously, he's going to say that. Well, but, sure. Yeah, but, I mean, still. but still. But you yeah. got somebody who's yeah. saying you it was a success. You got someone on wax yeah. saying, I think this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Nathan, it looks like you're, you're primed to bring us down to reality. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of reality, what I want you to do now is close your eyes, unless you're driving, in which case, keep your eyes open. But everyone else, close your eyes. And I want you to imagine like a typical 19-year-old in 1960. I got a crew cut 
Okay. You know, um, yeah, like button-up shirt, yeah. Yeah. maybe short sleeves. Maybe. I mean, maybe. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, but very, you know, yeah. very what I would call square. Yeah. yeah. Put clean together, cut. clean cut, mm-hmm. follows the rules. Yeah. Shirt tucked in. Yeah, I mean, and even if he's... Like, just after Leave it to Beaver. Basically, phase. just after just, Leave it. Yeah, he's yeah. like a grown-up wall. Totally. No. Yeah. Now, I want you to describe that same, not that same person, but a similar person, 19 years old, university student, 1969. That's when we're going to get more bell-bottoms, aren't we? Bell-bottoms. And, and, and hair. Long there's a lot hair. Of, there's oh, a lot yeah. of Shaggy there's facial hair. hair. There's yeah. hair on the head. Crazy there's... sunglasses. The, 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 the shirt like is weed. untucked. It smells like weed. Yeah. Untucked shirt. They, they're setting something on fire. They're yeah. holding up signs. They're lying on the grass being like, have you ever really, I mean, like really <laughs> looked at your hand? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm going to make an argument here. I don't think you can spell 1960s counterculture without the letters L- S D. Boom. Agreed. Boom. I mean, you can. But, I mean, metaphorically. You shouldn't, though. Yeah. I mean, okay. Why would you? Uh, oh, our our pivots are bad. <laughs> right. So that's what I want to talk about. I think that LSD was so fundamental to the '60s that we can't even imagine the '60s without seeing swirling colors <laughs> and people kind of spinning around and freaking out. So how how did that happen? Well, this is something that we've talked about before in other podcasts, and we're going to be referencing those podcasts. Basically, I want to concentrate specifically for the next couple of minutes on how maybe that 1960s counterculture of acid was accidentally contributed to by the CIA. Right, so history of LSD. Of course, as we all know, 1943, there is a chemist working for Sandoz in Basel, Switzerland, named Albert Hoffman who is working on derivatives of the ergot fungus, accidentally ingests some of this strange lysergic acid diethylamide that he has created, and then proceeds to absolutely trip balls. Is that the, like, trippy bike ride home that he had? Yeah, and then he goes on a bike ride home, and he's like... Has anyone ever, like, tried to make that a film, like a little short film? I feel like that would be incredible. It sounds like an utter nightmare, because uh, according to his own biography, he did something ended up consuming something like 10,000 times the, oh, the can dose. We, can this be a project of ours? I want to actually make <laughs> a short film of <laughs> to, this oh, bike trip. Oh, okay. So we're suggesting trying 10,000. No, no, no. Just this, this bike ride. I want to make like a short Lee film 10, of just this, like what this could have been like for the for Because him. he describes it. He yeah. talks about how the trees are alive yeah. and they're bending and they're stretching to so infinity. Cool. It's a wild scene. Okay, so that's going on. And now LSD has been invented and the first guy has tripped on it. Of course, this is also World War II, and some awful things are happening. Nazi scientists, for example, are experimenting at Dachau with uh, mescaline, barbiturates, scopolamine, these drugs that they're trying to use as mind control agents to try to eliminate the will of the subject. In the United States, Mm -hmm. the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, are doing similar experiments. They're using cannabis. That's the one that they think is going to work. None of these experiments work out that well. Now, of course, after the war, uh, the Nuremberg trials happen. And one of the big takeaways from the Nuremberg trials is that it is wildly, horrifyingly, gut-wrenchingly unethical to perform Mm -hmm. experiments on people without their consent. And there are a lot of doctors who are marched up to the front of that trial, and some of the awful, awful, terrible experiments they were doing on people are brought up to the surface. Yeah, and like laws are made after this saying you cannot, this is inhumane yeah. to perform these, right? Researchers have to obtain full volunt- voluntary consent from all subjects. 
Experiments should benefit society as mm -hmm. opposed to making it worse. And there can be no tests resulting in serious injury or death. And so you would think that those scientists would probably get what they deserve for carrying out these terrible experiments. Except, obviously, they yeah. did not. Because then the war ends, and now the CIA, as Elena said, the CIA is formed. And in 1950, they begin Project Bluebird, where they are looking into the same question of behavior modification. Can you break the individual? Can you reprogram a brain? In the late 1940s, uh, slightly before Bluebird is founded, one of the generals, General Walter Schreiber, one of the Nazi generals, the former Surgeon General uh, under the Nazi Party, who had been experimenting on humans resulting in the slow and agonizing deaths of those humans, had been arrested by the Soviets. And he managed to convince the Soviets to send him to East Berlin. From East Berlin, he escaped to West Berlin. And then in West Berlin, he encountered uh, American agents who took him in under, of course... Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip, yeah. which was the whitewashing of Nazi scientist pass. And they're like, hey, we can use this guy. What they start doing is they start to experiment on people in Germany. And apparently the death rate is shockingly high. Like there are dozens of people who are killed. Now, these people are uh, prisoners. They're spies. They are people who the, the, the government, uh, the CIA, feels they will not be missed. But there are a ton of experiments going on to try to see if you can break the human brain. And this becomes eventually Project Bluebird. In 1951, it becomes Project Artichoke. Now, also in 1951, we have Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, who is a figure that we've come across before, head of the technical services staff at the CIA. And he becomes super interested in this question. In 1953, under Gottlieb's supervision, Project Artichoke becomes Project... MKUltra. Oh, MKUltra. Yeah. Artichoke becomes MKUltra, which of oh, course... Right. I didn't know that. Super, yeah. super well-known. And it is largely focused on this question of can LSD be used to break and rebuild a human mind. Now, there's a couple ways that MKUltra uh, operates. One of the ways is actually very similar to what CIA did with artists and that it secretly funds a lot of individuals who happen to right. be... In, yeah, in other institutions. In other or, institutions. yeah. yeah. So we have uh, Bob Hyde at Boston Psychopathic, Harold Abramson, an important name that comes up a lot, Mount Sinai in Columbia University, Carl Pfeiffer at University of Illinois, Lewis West at the University of Oklahoma, Harold Lodge at the University of Rochester, Harris Isbell at the Addiction Research Center uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. Now, you saw that most of those are at universities, mm -hmm. which means that there's a lot of university students who are getting exposed to LSD in these experiments. Uh, Harold Isbell at the Addiction Research Center, he was experimenting not on students, but on inmates who had a lot less agency, who had a lot less mm -hmm. choice in the matter. And uh, Isbell is the guy who uh, put some of his, his inmates uh, into a trip that lasted for 77 straight days. Oh, my God. 77 wow. days on acid. A nightmare. Which is... How do you come back from that? Uh, some of them didn't. Right. Like, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. Like, I am by no means anti-hallucinogenic. But that's like, <laughs> but that's like psychotic break. Yeah. That, that just sounds like a nightmare yeah. to me. And a little Canadian content, a guy called Donald Ewan Cameron, who mm -hmm. was at McGill. McGill. Right. right. We talked about him in a previous one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Frank the, Olson the psychic yeah. driving that he did yeah. and how horrifying that was. Uh, so they're able to do a lot of experimentation, but the problem is these are still too voluntary for the CIA's liking. 
because they want to know what if you dose people who don't know they're being dosed, because of course that's how it would be used in the field. Mm -hmm. So they moved to field testing by 1953. The CIA agents who are in the project start to surprise dose their fellow agents at parties and things like this. Of course, this is what occurs to a gentleman named Dr. Frank Olson, who is dosed at a party. He is, of course, a really high-level a scientist working for the CIA. He is dosed uh, with acid at a party. You can listen to our MKUltra episode for more on that. Yeah, and you should, because mm-hmm. I, there is something extremely suspicious about the way he yes. fell out of that window. Right. So then by 1954, they expand that past just agents at parties. Now they want to uh, sort of bring in some real outsiders. So in something called Subproject 3, a safe house is opened up in Greenwich Village, New York, by a guy called Agent George Hunter White. And what he does is he uses sex trade workers to lure men into these apartments where they're dosed with acid and then they're recorded so behind one way. Climax? Yeah. Climax, yeah. And that one stuck with me for some reason. Yeah, it course. is the worst uh, yeah. slash best. Totally. Yeah, a name like, for a secret operation. Yeah. It's operation. like a euphemism that's not even a euphemism. Yeah. It's yeah. like trying to be, but it isn't at it's all. It's just describing yeah, exactly. Like if you heard, hey, I'm working on Operation Midnight Climax, <laughs> you're like, is there a one way mirror involved yeah. in this? Yeah. <laughs> So by 1955, they open up Subproject 42, safe house in San Francisco. And I can give you the exact address, actually. It was 225 Chestnut Street in Telegraph Hill. And they are performing the same operation. Now, you might be wondering, where'd the CIA even get all this LSD from? Well, in 53, a CIA agent went to Sandoz in Switzerland and bought all their acid. Wow. Hmm. Just went, give me all the acid you have. And then in something called Subproject 6... The CIA approached the pharmaceutical corporation Eli Lilly and told them, we want you to reverse engineer LSD because at that point, Sandoz had stopped making it. Okay. That's that's the basic story of MKUltra. It's horrifying. A lot of people, uh, some people lost their lives. A lot of people lost their souls in a way. But what I want to talk about very quickly is the, how did it escape out into the rest of the world? How did yeah. it become such mm-hmm. a dominant force in the 1960s? Because unlike marijuana or cannabis, which the United States government had been researching on before this, that's mm-hmm. something that you can understand how that makes its way into the black market. Sure, it but grows wild. It grows wild. People it have been be, using it for like decades. It can be cultivated without that much knowledge. But LSD is a different uh, ball game. You've got to be a chemist to make it. You've got to be a real chemist to make it. This is a colorless, odorless, clear liquid that is extremely strong and has mm-hmm. hundreds of ingredients. Yeah. So how did it get out into the world? Well, there's a couple ways. One way, I think, is going to flatter all of us because we are, of course, professors. Mm-hmm. And according to, <laughs> according to the research that I've read, one of the things that happened is that they said that grad students were really heavily influenced by their professors. Hmm. And so be, the professors were carrying out these I, experiments. I can tell with, you that's not true from experience, <laughs> just saying. It was the 60s. It was okay. a different time. One of the ways that happened is that basically it goes from the CIA to these professors. It goes from the professors to the grad students, from mm-hmm. the grad students just spread throughout the whole university. Right. Because that shows you how influential we are. There's some other uh, ways. Uh, Harold Abramson, who was uh, one of the uh, MK Ultra associates, uh, he starts throwing parties in 1955 in New York City for high society, no pun intended. And basically, 
it, it, they're popular enough that it makes Time Magazine a story in wow. Time Magazine about how Abramson's throwing these amazing LSD parties. Mm. Because LSD at the time, not yet illegal. But let's look at some of the key figures in the 1960s, the people that you can't imagine the 1960s being without. Ken Casey. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ken Casey, uh, author, wrote One Floor with the Cuckoo's Nest. He is the 1960s. Yep. He drove around in a painted bus. <laughs> called Further. Called Further. Just yep. driving around the United States, like giving people acid with his merry pranksters, throwing parties, like that's the most mm-hmm. 60s thing imaginable. Mm-hmm. But... But... He was a student volunteer for one of these MK Ultra programs. And so how did he first get introduced to it? It was through the CIA. The Grateful Dead, the most 60s band you can imagine. Mm-hmm. The Swirls, the Trips, the etc. The Grateful Dead is the most 60s band imaginable. Robert Hunter was a poet who wrote lyrics for The Grateful Dead. And you can see where this is going. Mm-hmm. Was also a student volunteer for an MK Ultra project. When he was asked to describe what acid was like, he said... The most 1960s quotation. (laughs) Sit back, picture yourself swooping up a shell of purple with foam crests of crystal drops, soft nigh they fall unto the sea of morning creep very softly mist. Love it. Oh my goodness. Was he high giving that quote? I think I'm high saying that quote. (laughs) I think I I got a contact from (laughs) that quote. Like if you think of the most important uh, poetry of the 1960s, you think of things like uh, the work of Allen Ginsberg that he was doing in the mm-hmm. 60s. Well, in 1959, Allen Ginsberg, the famous beat poet who influenced the 1960s in a big way, was, of course, in a CIA experiment on LSD. Timothy Leary, like the high priest of LSD, uh, who said famously, tune, tune in, in, turn on, on drop, drop out. out. Like that's the slogan of the counterculture mm-hmm. in some ways in the 1960s. Well, in 1966, he's a psychology professor at Harvard, and then he reads an article in Life magazine about a guy called Gordon Wasson and how he was tripping, uh, tripping, how he was making a trip to Mexico <laughs> oh, okay. in search of magic mushrooms so that he could go tripping. Mm. Right. What's, this is less direct because Leary himself was not part of an MKUltra experiment, but he was inspired by that article, and that trip that Wasson was making was funded by the CIA. So again, we Mm. see that connection. And so then after he reads this, uh, in fact, that that sponsored trip was part of Subproject 58, which was the CIA's exploration into psychedelic mushrooms, which went nowhere. So then Leary does shrooms in Mexico. He comes back as a convert. He gets fired almost immediately, as you would (laughs) expect. And then he, as I said, becomes a high priest of LSD. We can't imagine the 1960s without LSD. And I genuinely don't think that LSD has the penetration into society that it does without the work of the CIA. Mm. I don't think it's a necessary cause. I think that you could have had LSD become popular without the CIA. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a sufficient cause. I think there's other factors involved. Okay. But absolutely, I'm going to make the claim that the CIA was a contributory cause in the spread of LSD throughout the United States in the 1960s. Right. So there's, I mean, they're all getting exposure through their connection to MKUltra, and then they happen to be these influential yeah. cultural figures. Yeah. And I think that the, the amount of use of LSD by the general population would have been something like 6 or 7%. It wouldn't have been that high. That seems, even that seems high, I and have then, to admit. I mean, it's about 3% now. Okay, and really? On, in, in the 1960s, about mm-hmm. 6 to 7%, but it was so disproportionately influential in pop culture. Right. right. So I, I want to say a couple more things about this. 
One, speaking of unintended consequences, the the CIA wasn't trying to spread this this drug, particularly after they learned what the effect of the drug was. Yeah, because, I, I was going to ask about that because <laughs> um, there's a great little video clip that you can probably find still on YouTube. If you Google or search something to the effect of British soldiers LSD experiment. Maybe I can put it on our Instagram if I can find it. It's brilliant. Yeah. So, and what it does is uh, you can, <laughs> it's pretty clear from, from the, uh, the key words, but the uh, British army is trying out what, you know, can we militarize a uh, weaponize LSD? And so they give it to a bunch of, you know, soldiers in the field who don't know it's being given to them, who don't know it's being given to them. And the result is, and I, I don't know what happened to any of these individuals. I hope nothing bad the, because the result is absolutely hilarious. Uh, you watch it. And I mean, they stop being soldiers as soon as they get hit. Some of them, as soon as the LSD hits, some of them, they just kind of break they down sit laughing. Giggling. Yeah. They sit around giggling. They're they, sort of looking at their guns in a funny way. They put down their rocket launchers. Yeah. There's one guy who hightails it up a tree to feed birds and doesn't Amazing. come back down for the entire trip. So Those there, birds were hungry. There is one guy who totally loses his cool, like yeah. at which, which I would, too, I think because yeah, you don't know, you don't know, and this is out. not a fun experience. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't think of too many things that would be as frightening yeah. as being dosed with a hallucinogen without knowing it. Yeah. it yeah. would be terrifying. So either your soldiers turn into these cute, cuddly, silly goofballs, or they get really scared. Yeah, either way, it's not a helpful. No, so this not a was predictable outcome. By yeah, so this was my question. Yeah. Like, it seems like with. You know, funding modern art and acid, <laughs> the CIA is not they're, doing they're, they're itself any favors here. Mm. Well, here's a quotation from a CIA official. This was one of the many, many CIA officials who was dosed with, with LSD during the 60s. You tend to have a more global view of things. I found it awfully hard when stoned to maintain the notion that I am a U.S. citizen, my country, right or wrong. You tend to have these good higher feelings. You're more open to the brotherhood of man and more susceptible to the seamy sides of your own society. I think this is exactly what happened in, during the 1960s. That is such a good point. Yeah. To be like, I'm one with everything. <laughs> we are all connected. And I love you all. Like, it would not highlight any nationalistic or patriotic feelings at all. It would just be like, it's all, we're all We're all the same. one thing, man. Well, because one of the things that hallucinogens can do is tear down the distinctions between yeah. you and the other. It, it tears down artifice. Point. And yeah. what's more artificial than the idea of patriotism? Yeah. Uh, so one last quote from Allen Ginsberg. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, what, uh-oh, what? You uh-oh, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> one last quote from Allen Ginsberg. After he learned of the fact that uh, the CIA had funded the experiments he did, Am I, Allen Ginsberg, the product of one of the CIA's lamentable, ill-advised, or triumphantly successful experiments in mind control? Had they, by conscious plan or inadvertent Pandora's box, let loose the whole LSD fad on the U.S. and the world? Hmm. I mean, that's, that's such an amazing example of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Although they will, at the end, they, of course, LSD is now banned. And we know that it was banned by Nixon, and we know that Nixon banned it and made it illegal, because it was a way of sticking it to the left wing. And it was a way, uh, the way that they launched the war on drugs was actually their way of attacking left wing people, students, minorities, all these groups. Mm. And speaking of attacking all those groups. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you 
guys are nice and sad now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have either of you, being such pop culture aficionados as you are, have either of you heard of an actor named Gene Seberg? Yes. 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 You know what happened to her? I do not believe that I do. I think it was or real. maybe I do. I think it was but real I don't bad. Remember. She was a famous actress in the well. Uh, she was famous in the '60s, and she had appeared in I think something like over 30 films by that time, for directors like Jean Luc Godard and mm. you know other famous, especially French, but not only French, uh, film directors. She was a supporter of the Black Panther Party. Uh, She gave financial donations to the Black Panther Party. And as a result of that, became wrapped up in another conspiracy we've talked about on the podcast called COINTELPRO, or the Counterintelligence Program, uh, launched by the FBI in the 50s. Uh, She got wrapped up in that, and it eventually cost her her child's life and her own. And it's such a tragic story, but is really encapsulates how devastating this COINTELPRO project was. And I thought I'd start there because it is also such a clear and obvious impact on culture and maybe counterculture if we think about sort of Hollywood and actors and people like that as as maybe as you had uh, framed it, Nathan, earlier, as being part of this counterculture. So uh, I wanted to (laughs) go back and review uh, this program that the FBI now, more than the CIA, was responsible for, called uh, COINTELPRO. And just to give you a brief definition of it, it was a program by the FBI, started in the 50s, that went until the early 70s, targeting mostly, but not exclusively, uh, left-wing political organizations. It was intended to basically spy on them, But more than that, infiltrate them, disrupt them, and even, quote-unquote, and it's a a real open question what this means, neutralize them. Right. Because neutralize is, in the context of the 60s, an open secret that this means kill. Right. So... But it doesn't always. So (laughs) it's like either being make them ineffective. That's right. But I mean, I'm sure you're going to give examples of this deeply personal reach where it is beyond just... Like, you know, there are people who are murdered and, yeah. and whatnot. So it's not just that. Yeah, so like Gene Seberg was neutralized. Uh, Gene mm-hmm. Seberg was neutralized. Uh, Fred, Hampton Fred Hampton was yeah. neutralized. They tried to neutralize uh, Martin Luther King. This was a very serious breach of First Amendment rights, which protects Americans' political free speech and ability to basically engage in a democratic political process even with parties that are not mainstream, Mm -hmm. right? So the problem with political freedom, uh, democratic freedom, is that, you know, a lot of people have different ideas than us, and that's really frustrating, but you got to kind of tolerate it to some extent because that's protected Mm -hmm. under political freedom. Now, the COINTELPRO program was the FBI essentially trying to disrupt and prevent people from engaging in non-mainstream political activities. So some very concrete examples was, if you were part of the Black Panther Party, you would maybe receive anonymous letters implicating you, or your your family might receive anonymous letters implicating you in some way. These, uh, these letters were written, we know now, by the FBI. 
but they were coming apparently from concerned citizens or friends mm-hmm. or something like that. So, for example, in the case of Jean Seberg, she had given money to the Black Panthers, uh, was a supporter of you know, non-racist policies that the Black Panthers were in support of. And as a result, she became noticed by the FBI as a potential problematic figure on the left who needed to be dealt with. And there was a fake article put into a number of gossip columns. And this was, this was I found, quite disturbing. The FBI contacted... Uh, the editors of Gossip Columns, and planted a story about Jean Seberg, who was pregnant, this was known, that sh- that um, it wasn't her husband who fathered mm. the child, it was uh, somebody within the Black Panther Party. And the Gossip Columns ran with this. I don't know, I didn't read a biography about uh, her, I don't know her own mental health at this point, but certainly this very vicious and public media campaign really impacted her very dramatically. Um, she physically, this, and this was during her pregnancy. She miscarried. Uh, well, that is to say, she gave birth to a child very prematurely. The, the, the child was only four pounds at the time of birth. It was a baby girl. And I don't know if I should at this point note that she was white. Because it was well, Jean Seberg noted it. Okay, so we note that the that the baby girl was white, so it was clear that this was a lie. That this this story was clearly not true. But the stress of it caused her to give birth to this child early, mm-hmm. and on the anniversary of her oh, of her child's death, she committed geez. suicide. Hi, this is me, Nathan, interrupting for a second. When we did this podcast live, it was a big success, we had a lot of fun, and we're going to start doing them more often. One of the great things about doing the live podcast is that we can interact with the listeners. And after this show, a very nice woman came up to us and asked us very politely to not use the phrase committed suicide. Uh, The reasoning is because it has an association with crime and with sin. And we all agreed with her, and we're going to try to avoid using this phrase in the future. So I just wanted to hop in at this point and make that comment. Now back to the show. Well, not only that, but for her child's funeral, she invited the press and had an open casket. So she she said, everyone, look at this kid. Wow. And this is the kind of stuff that that the FBI was getting up to mm-hmm. in the 1960s. We had talked, because we've talked about COINTELPRO uh, in a previous episode, we talked about the murder of Fred Hampton, who was a young black kid in Chicago, 21 years old, charismatic. You can find still uh, mm-hmm. clips of him talking uh, on YouTube. I mean, the guy is such a charismatic, well-spoken, eloquent, clearly politically engaged, mm-hmm. uh, active, up-and-coming leader who was, you know, the head of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. And um, the FBI raided his place on suspicion uh, that he had uh, illegal weapons stored there, fired 99 bullets into the apartment to a where his pregnant partner was sleeping next to him. He had been drugged mm-hmm. by an informant and was not killed. He was mortally wounded in the firefight not killed and an fbi agent sees this pulls out his gun and point blank range shoots him in the head and says he's good and dead now Jeez. this is the fbi 
in the 1960s operating to destroy, dismantle, discredit, disrupt, and in some cases neutralize people that they saw as political enemies. Mm -hmm. It is an absolutely amazing story in and of itself. It's amazing how little it's known in public culture. This is another thing that uh, really struck me is when you talk to people not interested in conspiracies or not versed in it, and you ask them about a big political conspiracy that comes to light in the 70s, Watergate is almost always the first thing that's mentioned. Sometimes you get something else, but in my experience, I've not ever encountered somebody who said, oh yeah, COINTELPRO was the biggest, most dramatic event, because really, if you compare it, Nixon is one guy trying to preserve his own power. COINTELPRO is state power trying to prevent the democratic process from taking place within the United States. Yeah, and it seems so much more diffused as well to think of like the FBI versus like Nixon, where you can pinpoint it. Exactly. And, and it's, he's a character yeah. And figure, yeah. Now, we also talked about there's a famous letter that uh, is sent to Martin Luther King. Just another example of thousands and thousands upon uh, of uh, these kinds of actions that were being undertaken by the FBI. Feminist reading groups were infiltrated and, and, and women were kept tabs on. You know, there would be things at the end of the Pro papers where the agent would say, you know, to something to the effect of, well, they, you know, they weren't really talking about anything interesting today, but we'll just keep going. We'll just keep digging. Mm-hmm. We'll keep we'll keep tabs on these people. Right. So in a lot of the research I was doing, there was a uh, the there was one police agency that kept being referred to as an analogy to this. And that was the Stasi. That is the East German secret police, which is just, if you know anything about it, you know that they spied on innocent civilians trying to go about their day, got in their business, screwed around with them, opened their mail, sent fake mail. If you wanted an avatar for paranoid runaway surveillance power, you would just say the Stasi. The Stasi. And, you know, I I don't know how often I've mentioned this on the podcast before. My background is German. That is to say, I was actually born in Germany. I grew up there for a time. Speak German. I speak German. And (laughs) there's something Germans are somewhat familiar with, and that's police states, you know? We've had two of them. There's the the Nazi dictatorship, which everyone knows about, and then there's the East German, you know, bureaucratic state socialist dictatorship. In both cases, there were state police. And it's been sort of a personal interest of mine maybe as a consequence of that history to you know think about why how does this happen why does this happen where does this happen and growing up there was always a because i grew up in north america there was always this clear sense of well that happens over there and it's the kind of thing that happens in the soviet union or in Mm -hmm. nazi germany or in east germany it doesn't happen in democratic liberal societies like the united states in the 1960s where you had free love and LSD and music. And, you know, there was the Vietnam War going on. And of course, there's state violence and state power, but not MK Ultra mm-hmm. stuff, not COINTELPRO stuff. This was a real revelation for me. And the thing that I found so exciting about this story is how it comes to light. And again, we have talked, because we've talked about most of these, except for Elena's conspiracy on a previous podcast. I just want to review, though, how... We ever heard about the fact that the FBI was engaged in these incredibly 
unconstitutional and anti-democratic activities. Even if some of them weren't at that time necessarily illegal, many of them have since become illegal, even though actions that weren't illegal, you would have to look at from the vantage point of somebody interested in democracy as saying that's just not justifiable. How do we learn about this? Because the FBI did not come out and apologize or say that we were doing this and, you know, we've thought better of it. And, and this story is really remarkable. It's recounted actually in a lot of different places if you want to do more of a deep dive yourself. There's recently been a documentary that's come out called 1971. And there's also uh, a book called The Burglary um, written by Jean Metzger, who was the woman who first received the documents from the, uh, the people who broke in. So she then broke first the story and has now since broken the story of the burglar's identity. A group of you know what? They were ordinary folk. Uh, this is what I also find so interesting. It's a cab driver. It's um, a daycare operator. It's a, um, a prof for uh, religious studies and another prof for physics. Like these are just like family folk who are, you know, just going about their life. Anyway, they they were committed to doing something like protesting against the war. They were part of the anti-war movement. This is the Vietnam War. And they were really upset by what was happening. The unjustness of the war, the fact that people were getting drafted. One of the guys who, who engages in this action described it really clearly in the documentary. He said, you know, the war is un I was mad at the war. Uh, the war was unjust. And I was really mad when they wanted me to join. And, you know, there was that fact that there was the universal draft made it so... Uh, so real for people, I think, in a way that subsequent wars today that are unjust don't seem as mm. distressing to us, maybe. They formed this group, these, these, these people formed this group called the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. Right. Uh, and they, they target... Horrible. Yeah. So what they, have been, what they have been part of is these draft board raids, because they're part of the anti-war movement. They've been part of draft board raids, where what you do is you go in... And you destroy the draft cards. Right. Now, this is in a pre-digital system yeah. where everything is done You're by paper. Cards. And if you yeah. burn the paper, then the record of these people about to be drafted disappears. I feel like I would have done that. It's awesome, yeah. right? And they, what they also do is they also target especially uh, underprivileged areas where the draft was yeah, really sucking targeting. kids out of poor areas to a disproportionate extent than rich areas. So, well, because the the rich kids would probably be able to afford some kind of manner of getting out of that like war. Donald Trump. Uh, I, hey, I, he had bone spurs. Yeah, sure, Real he bad did. Bone spurs, apparently. One of the profs who was a big influence in my undergraduate career is an American, and the reason he's in Canada is because he participated in getting kids out of the draft, mm -hmm. and you know, draft as, he was a draft dodger, yeah. but he was also helping the right. draft dodgers and right. organizing cool. that and he explained how they did it at, yeah there's uh, a lot campus. in canada yeah yeah and he explained how they would do it on campus they mm -hmm. get the university or the, you know, the campus staff doctor to do the medical uh, but what they would do is they'd say to the students go run around the campus five times and then they take their blood pressure and be like well you're you got really high blood pressure you right. can't go to right. so ki rich kids or or middle class kids sometimes had opportunities mm -hmm. to get out of the draft poor kids often didn't right mm -hmm. anyway they got frustrated, though, with these in-and-out actions that kind of saved 100 kids mm -hmm. or 5,000 kids but didn't change anything about the structure of the war. They really wanted to expose what was going on because especially, and I find this really telling too, a lot of people knew that they were being infiltrated by the FBI. You know, it was... 
people would give reports back going to demos and there'd be all these protesters and then there'd be these like five dudes with crew cuts and a tie-dye t-shirt and right. like who's uh, the guy with the square haircut amazing. yeah like you guys clearly don't That's fit funny. in here um so people were and shiny and if, shoes probably yeah. yeah and especially like the black panthers they had no doubt i mean they could see this stuff you know mm. coming from a mile away there was a lot of heat on them and a lot of evidence was piling up that they were being infiltrated but you know if you don't have any proof you just sound like a crank when you say this stuff mm. so they were upset about the draft they were also upset about the fbi they target a small field office that the fbi had in a town called media which is in pennsylvania um jagger hoover had set up there so there were these central bases in big in big cities which were like impenetrable fortresses but then the fbi also had field offices and they all had duplicates of the records so what they did was they cased this place it was the night of the muhammad ali joe frazier fight mm. everybody's busy everybody's right. preoccupied right and they go in to uh the second floor of this apartment building the second floor had the fbi offices on it the first floor had like the super who was there that right. day like doing but there was otherwise no uh, security. That's so Ocean's Eleven of them. They're like, totally. Yeah, big fight it's on. Totally it's totally awesome. a, uh, it's a heist. It's a, heist. Yeah. It's a yeah, full yeah, yeah. on heist, yeah. but it actually happened. The one guy's taken uh, correspondence courses on lock picking, so he gets them into the into the place. They walk in with suits and uh, with suitcases. They gently and quietly take all the documents out. Okay, this needs them. to be the film we make instead. Well, it's already been yeah. made. Alas, <laughs> I know, I know, right? Okay. So they take all the documents out, they put them into their suitcases, and they drive away. Amazing. At first, you know, it's reported that this has happened, but nobody understands what the significance is, not even the burglars. Mm -hmm. They go to a safe house an hour and a half away, reconvene there, and start going through all these files that they found. So what they've done is they've gotten FBI internal memos and files and stuff like that. And what they're looking for is anything out of place because they are sure that the FBI is communicating to each other that they're doing these kinds of secret and probably illegal operations. What they discover far is far beyond anything anybody could have imagined. As far as the scope? As far as the scope, as far as the duration, as far as the consequences. In one of these pages, there is something called COINTELPRO New Left. And they don't know what it is. They do start mailing the the papers that they that that clearly indicate that the FBI is infiltrating, disrupting political groups, doing stuff like this. They mail that to uh, a journalist. They actually mailed it to a bunch of journalists, all of whom did not publish, but for one. And then there is this one question: that what what does this thing COINTELPRO refer to? And there's a journalist who thereafter gets this information and files a freedom of information request. And the government is not willing to cough up any information, so he sues the government. And it is the first successful court case for wow. freedom of information. Oh. They so first, first case. They <laughs> first cough up four pages. Stupidly, they did not think to uh, black out the cross-references to other files on these four pages. Nice. So not only uh, do they uh, thereby admit that COINTELPRO was a thing, they actually give all the necessary information Amazing. in these four pages to then file subsequent oh, freedom of brilliant. information requests to get everything. By the end of it, 
50,000 pages are dropped on this journalist's desk. And they prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that things like the Gene Seberg case was an FBI operation, that Martin Luther King was an FBI operation, that the Black Panthers were a primary target of the FBI, and on and on and on and on. It becomes really the what should have been one of the biggest scandals in American politics ever. Remember that they're fighting the Vietnam War for political freedom mm-hmm. in another country, right? And here they are cracking down in, in essentially illegal ways. Now, this shocks a lot of people because the FBI had a kind of hallowed status within the United States. They were it, the G-men. They were, and they were the kind of thing that people looked up to. You know, as a kid, you would want to be... I want to be a G-man. Uh, exactly, you know, and they just seemed like they were in control. They were, they were the good guys. And after this, people stopped thinking the FBI were the good guys. Now, not everybody thought that in the 60s. Mm-hmm. If you were a member of the Black Panthers, you if knew you the FBI were not the good guys. Yeah. But now you suddenly, mainstream society discovers that the kind of radicals and the, the those in the counterculture, that the stuff that they were saying was actually right. Mm-hmm. So if the whole point of this horrifying COINTELPRO project was to try to tamp down on the counterculture, yeah. if the point was to try to protect the status quo, if the point was to try to protect the uh, the way people looked at American agencies and institutions, it ended up having the exact opposite yeah, effect. Yeah, epic fail. I think it really epic radicalized fail. a yeah. lot of people. I think that if you... I just imagine myself, you know, if I am tacitly, moderately interested in a political party that's not mainstream, I start donating small amounts of money to them. And then the blowback mm-hmm. from that is that my wife starts receiving letters right. from anonymous sources about Saying how that you're I'm having like, an affair. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you start to wonder, like, what what's going on? And I think that begins a process among the mainstream of radicalizing them mm-hmm. in a way where... You know, the radicals had been radicalized because of whatever happened to them growing up. Everybody else, I think, gets somewhat radicalized as a result of learning about what their own government was doing. And in fact, one of the burglars regrets his involvement in this action because of the distrust that it sowed. Right. Huh. Interesting. Huh. So what's the takeaway? Um, the I'm not going to say... I think it's similar, actually, the takeaway is similar as what both of you have mentioned. There's, in one sense, the unintended consequences. I don't think that COINTELPRO creates the counterculture. I don't think it creates the radicalization within the counterculture. I think you don't have to look much further than the Vietnam War for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, entrenched systemic racism, entrenched systemic sexism. I'd have to look this up, but I think you still in the 1950s have something called the marriage bar, which is where women have to leave work when they get married because, you know, you'd be taking a job away from a man. So we're not that far Mm -hmm. in 1965 from, Mm -hmm. you know, like overt oppression. But that sexist, racist culture was the one that the FBI is trying to protect and Mm -hmm. hold on to with COINTELPRO. Yeah. And I I think there is this, this... there is a certain kind of radicalization I, that takes place because of it. I think there's a general lack of trust uh, that emerges out of this. I mean, after Watergate, MKUltra, and COINTELPRO all become public knowledge in the early 70s, you're like, well, hmm. How can you trust? How can you trust uh, yeah. them? 
And then MKUltric shows up in like 1974, 75. And people are like, so mind control too. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I I don't want to say it it generated any counterculture movements. I think it heightened them a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, In one of the COINTELPRO documents, they say that they want to get the new left or, or people on the left to think that there's an FBI agent behind every mailbox. And I think that kind of paranoia that mm-hmm. they were trying to stoke worked. Mm-hmm. And but then, it's but still then, with us. But then yeah. blew back on them. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As it always does, right? What is also interesting is the question of the burglars now, their identities are known. And there's this question about the statute of limitations. Like, how come they're not being arrested now? And I found this so telling. The FBI's asked for comment after... Uh, the burglars' identities have become known. And the FBI responds, and I'm paraphrasing, to the extent of, you know, a lot of things, including the burglary, really helped the FBI change their internal culture. So the way that the FBI sees this is sort of as a learning moment. They were whistleblowers. You know? Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that there is... that. There was things that gotten stale within the FBI. There were these groups who did this illegal thing that we don't really condone, but good things happened as a result of it. So they've really incorporated this as a kind of redemption story. You right. know, we're a right. better FBI as a result of this. Yeah. I think you would have to look at the revelations of subsequent whistleblowers in light of that. And I think... I think it's pretty clear that that's not true. They learned nothing. Mm-hmm. That would be for, or is it them or is it us? I'm not sure. None of us have learned anything. <laughs> In conclusion, yes. none of us have learned anything. That is, that's the ending right there. There you go. We, we just didn't learn anything.